Hey, I'm Frank Butler. A few months ago, I gave a four-lecture introduction to apologetics at a local church's leadership group. I have taken the four lectures and broken them up into approximately 20-minute segments to make the material more accessible. What you are listening to today is part two of lecture one from that series. I pray that this material serves to advance the kingdom of our Lord by teaching the people of His church. Thank you for listening. Well, we'll be alright if the Lord be on our side. We'll be alright if the Lord be on our side. We'll be alright if the Lord be on our side. And the Lord is on our side. Point seven. The necessary nature of conflict. The necessary nature of conflict. Conflict is unavoidable. Conflict is unavoidable when you do apologetics. How many of you in this room like conflict? I'll raise my hand high. <laughs> I, I enjoy this. I mean, conflict is unavoidable. Listen to me, guys. If you defend the Christian faith as God has commanded you to do, you will come into conflict with people. There will be angry people. There will be problems. There will be people who disagree and dislike what you're saying. There will be people who, in my experience, who will get angry, cuss you out, throw something at you, and maybe throw a punch. People get angry. Conflict is unavoidable. And can I just say real quick, that's part of being a Christian. Every page of Acts has the Christians being threatened. Every page of Acts has the Christians in trouble. Every page of Acts, there's a conflict happening. It's unavoidable. The text we looked at just earlier, Paul is in conflict when he gives a defense. Paul is in conflict when he gives his defense. Look at John chapter 3, verse 19. You don't have to turn there, but... This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When you do apologetics, you are taking the spotlight and you are putting it on the foolishness of the unbeliever. You are putting it on the failure of the unbeliever's worldview. You are calling out the sinful attitude of the unbeliever's heart. And according to John chapter 3, they don't like it. They don't like the light. It tells them that they're sinners. They love darkness. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. It's, they're hostile to God in their nature. We're going to talk more about this tonight, actually, but that's something you need to understand early on. The unbeliever that you interact with, the unbeliever that you're friends with, the unbeliever that's your coworker, the unbeliever that's in your family, isn't just an unbeliever who disagrees with you. The Bible says they are hostile towards God. They are hostile towards God. Letter E in your outline. We do not intentionally draw conflict. We do not intentionally draw conflict. Now, what do you think I mean by that? We do not intentionally draw conflict. Let me ask you. If I go out to the corner of Palafox tonight, or on a Friday night when it's really full of people, and I begin proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all of you are sinners and must repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation or be cast into hell, am I inviting conflict? Yes. Yeah. You know what? I don't am know. I, you know, like, it, okay, let's change. You might not, a rebuttal, yes, is a rebuttal conflict. Is it negative? Con is it, I'm sorry, is it inviting conflict? Oh. No. Not at all. 
Yeah. You're right. But but let me ask you. Is it healthy anymore? Like in these times. Here's the question I'll ask: Is it healthy anymore? Did Jesus do it? Unless you're willing to say the Savior of the universe did things that were unhealthy. <laughs> when I say we do not intentionally draw conflict, when I say we do not intentionally draw conflict, what I mean is we do not sit down across the table from the guy at Waffle House and tell them, you believe that? You're an idiot. We don't do that. It's also not going out of your way just to be a jerk. That's inviting conflict, going out of your way just to be a jerk. Okay, that's poking someone in the eye just because their eye is open. Don't do that. That's inviting conflict. Looking back at 1 Peter chapter 3, where we just were, the text says that we are to do this with gentleness. We are to do this with reverence. And we are to do this keeping a good conscience. Let's look at this real quick. Gentleness. What does that mean? Now, gentleness should not be defined the way you and I are prone to define it in our world today. Because let's be honest real quick. If most of us went to John chapter 6, we wouldn't call that gentle. No, no. We wouldn't say this, but we would be thinking, Jesus can be kind of a jerk sometimes. That's what we would be thinking, and we'd be wrong. Gentleness is not defined by the cultural sensitivities around you or by your own personal inclinations. Gentleness is defined by the Scripture. It's defined by the example of Christ. It's defined by the example of Paul. It's defined by the example of Peter. Is defined by the prophets in the Old Testament. It's defined by Moses. Gentleness is what we see in Scripture, not what we feel like is best. Something I point out all the time, and people don't care to hear it, so I'm going to say it again. If no one has ever been angry with you about your beliefs, then you may not be acting like Jesus. They killed him for what he said. The problem with most preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. Gentleness, reverence, reverence. You do this honoring God. You engage in apologetics in a way that is reverent to the God that you are defending. Okay? How do you show reverence to God? One, you show respect to the image bearer that you are talking to. Number two, you use the scriptures. You obey the scriptures. When God says, thou shalt not lie, you don't enter an apologetic conversation and start lying to the person about all the knowledge that you don't actually have. (laughs) Well, I've read all these books that tell me this, and truthfully, you don't even know what those books are. Don't do that. Show reverence to God when you are engaging with an unbeliever. Show them that this God that you believe in saved you and will save them as well. Then finally, keeping a good conscience. When you start engaging with people, things get a little heated. That's okay. We're going to talk about that in a second, but that's okay. Your job is not to get heated with them. Your job is to be able to end this conversation and say, I can sleep peacefully tonight knowing that I did what my God commanded me to do in a way that my God commanded me to do it. No matter how they feel, no matter how they reacted, I have a good conscience about what I've done. The fact is, we have conflict because people dislike their presuppositions being questioned. People dislike what they assume to be true being questioned. If you sit down with a Muslim and begin explaining to them how the Quran is a load of crock, they're going to get very upset. If you sit down with an atheist and explain to them how in the atheistic worldview they cannot account for anything that they believe, that their worldview makes absolutely no sense, they're going to get angry. They're going to dislike it. And guess what? Your job is to lean in. Your job is to lean in. Why? Because that's where the problem is. That's where the idol is. 
That's where the false belief is, and your job is to deal with that. When they get upset, that is not a sign, oh, I've touched something I shouldn't have, I need to back off. No, it's a sign, that's where the problem is. And you're angry because you know it. We're going to talk about how they know it in a little bit, but they're angry because they know it. Another quote from Dr. Van Til. The fight between Christianity and non-Christianity is, in modern times, no piecemeal affair. It is the life and death struggle between two mutually opposed life and worldviews. You guys realize when you engage in evangelism, when you engage in apologetics, when you engage in the work of ministry, that's what you're doing. When you deal with unbelievers, it is a struggle, it is a war, it is a battle between two mutually opposed worldviews. We are not all different religions and different beliefs all moving up the same mountain to the same goal. No, we are differing armies and we're at war with each other. The problem is the other armies don't realize Christ has already won. Christ has already won. Number eight, what apologetics is not. What apologetics is not. It is not an apology. I cannot tell you how many times I have been told that it is. I asked the question at another class I was teaching. What is apologetics? And the answer I got was, it's an apology for what the church has done through history. No, it's not. <laughs> it is not an apology. It is not an admittance of wrongdoing. It is not public relations for Jesus. It's not you trying to make Jesus cool to the unbeliever. It's not you trying to make Jesus acceptable to the unbeliever. It's not you trying to make him understandable, relatable, and the best friend of the unbeliever. That's not your goal. This is a frustrating point to me because we so often neuter the Scriptures just so we could get someone to accept them. And guess what? If you have to neuter the Scriptures for someone to accept it, they're not accepting the Scriptures anymore. They're still God in their own minds. You are not to give in to that. You are not here to make Jesus cool. When you are asked a hard question about the Bible, I don't mean hard as in hard as to understand the answer. I mean hard as in this answer is going to hurt feelings. Your job isn't to pat it as much as you possibly can. That's not your job. It's not public relations. It's not your testimony. Oh, this frustrates me. This frustrates me. Why do you believe in that Christian God? Well, I was an alcoholic, and a guy came to me with a KJV Bible and a chick track, and I read through that, realized I was going to hell, and he saved me from alcoholism that day. First off, that's great. That's good news. That's the gospel saves you from these things. That is good news. That's not an apologetic, though. That is not an argument for the Christian God. That is not an argument for Christ. Because guess what? A Muslim could say, I was an alcoholic, and Allah stepped in and saved me. You see the problem there. It's relativism. It's not your testimony. It's also not the gospel. It's also not the gospel. I mean this in more than one way. The first of which, though, is... Just because you can defend the Christian worldview against every argument, against every unbelief, doesn't mean you've told the unbeliever that Jesus Christ died to save sinners of whom I am chief. Just because you've defended your worldview aptly and they have no other answers, they have no other rebuttals, does not mean that you've told them you must repent and believe in Jesus Christ. doesn't mean you've done that. It also doesn't mean that repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation is your answer to every single question. A few years back, I'm sitting down at Waffle House with a good friend of mine. Another friend who happens to be the cook actually comes in and tells us that 
Uh, he's, I've been talking to him about faith for years. And he starts asking questions about his wife and his daughter being Catholic. And he starts asking, what happens if I get saved? I believe what's in this scripture. I get saved and my wife and daughter don't. What happens? My friend, while meaning well, wrongly responds, it doesn't matter. You need to repent and believe in Jesus to save your own soul. Did he answer his question? No. The gospel is non-apologetic. No, the answer that he should have gave that I did follow up and give was, brother, you can't do anything for them until you know truth yourself. You can't lead them to salvation until you know salvation yourself. It's giving the gospel and answering the apologetic question. That's what we're supposed to do, not just give the gospel. It's not blind faith. I asked the question, can you objectively prove the Christian faith? I don't remember who it was, but someone in the room said, well, you know, where does that leave for faith? Faith and reason, faith and apologetics are not in conflict with each other. Here's what happens, and I'm going to go into this more detail in just a few minutes, but here's what happens. You have an unbeliever who believes all sorts of crazy things, who has a number of excuses why he cannot believe the Christian worldview. Can you save him? No, you can't. What you can do, though, is cut to the foundation of his disagreement, his foundation of why he doesn't believe. Deal with that. Remove all the garbage. Remove all the excuses for why he doesn't believe in God. And then leave him in a place where he has to acknowledge, I don't believe because I don't want to. And then God gives faith if he chooses to. The rest is up to God. It's not blind faith. It's not looking at someone and we have this horrible, horrible, seemingly holy attitude where I don't have an answer to your questions, but I believe it because I believe in Jesus, because I'm a religious person. Well, that's not what the Scriptures tell us. The Scriptures tell us to give an answer. The Scriptures tell us to give an answer. It's not vague notions of hope. It's not vague notions of hope. How many of you have seen the movie God is Not Dead? One person in the whole room. Two, oh. <laughs> is the overall attitude of that movie good or bad in here? Okay, so I, if I, I hate to burst your bubble, I hated it. The movie ends, though, terrible apologetic movie. The movie ends that throughout the movie you're following a reporter who's just been diagnosed with cancer. And she attends a Newsboys concert. Newsboys. This is like 2001. The Newsboys concert and heads to the back to interview the band. She's not a believer. She's been diagnosed with cancer. and She goes to this concert to interview them. She then has a small back and forth with the band leader. I don't know his name. The guy in the really tight pants. And the crescendo, the big, <laughs> the big point of the movie, the big, this is the climax moment. The singer of Newsboys looks at her and says, but where is your hope? And she is devastated. She falls apart. I haven't thought of that. Where is my hope? The thing I hate most about this movie is that Christians left this movie thinking that's how you answer an unbeliever. And guess what? They went and found their unbelieving friend and they got shot down. They looked like fools. But if you go to an unbeliever and say, you don't believe, where's your hope? They're going to ask you, a smart non-Christian will say, why do you need hope? And you're going to say, I don't know, why do I? It's not vague notions of hope. It's also not meaningless arguing. It's also not meaningless arguing. This is a challenging point because you have to be able to differentiate in the conversation, all right, are we getting into the weeds or are we staying on the path that we should be on? Okay, now there is a time for arguing in the weeds. There is. 
But the main question you have to ask is, are we still moving towards the goal? How do I keep this towards the path of dealing with the person's presuppositions, their worldview? And finally, it is not a defense of some God somewhere. Now, this may sound crazy. This is how most Christians defend the, world, the Christian worldview today. Somewhere out there, we have reason to believe that there is some God. A very, the, the, in fact, one of the most popular apologists in all of the world today has on record said that he was asked, do you believe, do you know for certain that this God exists? Do you know the Christian God exists? To which his response was, the amount of evidence that is presented seems most likely, the preponderance of the evidence is most likely that there is a God. We were told to give an answer, not a possibility. So, why do we do apologetics? Why do we do apologetics? Number one, because God commanded it. Because God commanded it and we want to be faithful to His Word if we are believers. Number two, because we love God. We love God. We believe His Word. We believe in His person. We believe what He said. We believe what He's done and we love Him. So we will defend Him. Point C, because we love our neighbor. Because we love our neighbor. I will, I will challenge my neighbor's unbelieving thoughts because I love him and I don't want him to go to hell. Even if it makes him angry. And finally, the dominion mandate. How many of you ever heard that phrase before? Yeah, that phrase only exists in certain small circles of the Christian church. Dominion mandate, what that basically is, is that God created man to rule over creation, to be God over creation, to be the priest and the king and the prophet over creation, to rule creation. If a myriad of creation is doing and believing whatever it wants to do, then man is not ruling over and we're to bring all things into subjection to Jesus Christ. That's what that means. John Calvin said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a coward. If I hear someone disagreeing with my God, if I hear someone challenging what my God says, if I hear someone saying my God is wrong, I want, in, I want in on that fight. Why it's important. Why it is important. An ability to defend our beliefs will make our evangelism more effective. How many of you believe you should share your faith with unbelievers? I was going to say, if no one raises their hand, I'm changing the lesson right now. The ability to defend your belief will make your evangelism more effective. We do not have to fear bringing up Christianity with our friends and neighbors if we're able to give the answers to their questions. You don't have to worry about sharing your faith with someone if you know that whatever objection they give you, whatever disagreement they give you, you can answer. If you know you can answer it, listen to me. I can walk, and I'm not promoting myself, I'm not being arrogant when I say this, I'll explain why I'm saying this in a little bit. I have no problem walking out the doors of this church, going down to Fuzakli's, and sitting down with a random guy and telling him what Jesus has said in the Scriptures is true. I have no fear of what he might say back, because the Bible has already told us it's true. And I believe what the Bible says. And I know I can answer from this book what's true. See. We need never fear the highly intelligent unbeliever. The guy that you hope doesn't ask you questions about your Bible. You don't need to fear him if you do apologetics and if you know it well. 
That was supposed to be as one point. If we're adequately able to defend the faith. You don't need to fear him if you're adequately able to defend your faith. Evangelistic zeal is increased by the study of apologetics. Guess what? If you know how to wield a sword well, if you know how to fight well with a sword, you're not afraid to go into battle because you know you can fight. You know you can defend yourself. You know you can cut down the enemy. It strengthens the believer's faith by curtailing doubt. How many of you have ever struggled with your faith? How many of you have ever struggled with doubt? I don't know that I believe. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that this is true. Apologetics helps with that. Apologetics allows you to answer your own objections as well. Reasons why we need apologetics. Reasons why... I got my paper backwards. Reasons why we neglect apologetics. I'm sorry. Reasons why we neglect apologetics. It's not spiritual enough. I'll be honest with you. While there is a major spiritual component, it is the worship of God to do apologetics. It is the study of Scripture to do apologetics. It is also highly, highly intellectual. Not saying you have to be a genius. Not saying you have to be a bookworm to get it. But you do have to do more than just feel. You do have to do more than just enjoy reading it. You have to know it and study it hard. The Bible says you're to worship God with all your mind. If you are worshiping God with all your mind, you will have no problem doing the spiritual aspect of apologetics as well. God requires your mind as well as your heart. It's not, we, we, we don't do apologetics because it's not spiritual enough. We want to leave it to the pros. This is really frustrating. I'll get a phone call a couple times a week. Hey, I posted this on Facebook, and there's people now on there really unhappy. Can you, can you come in and comment? I'm not a hitman. But of, course, but of course, because I can't resist, I go do it anyway. That's not how we're supposed to do it. We're not supposed to neglect apologetics because there are guys in the church that are really good at it, and I'll let him go talk to my unbelieving friend. No, you're supposed to be able to give the answer. That's not to say that there aren't people that are better at this or more gifted at this or more apt to this. However, the duty is on you to answer. The duty is on you. You can ask someone for help, but the duty is on you. Because it turns people off. We shouldn't do apologetics because people might get upset and they won't want to hear what Jesus has to say. That's not your business. That's not your business. Jesus said in 1 Peter to do it. The Spirit inspired us to do it. We are called to do apologetics. How a person responds to our message is not our problem. If we cast the seed and it falls into soil that has rocks in it and it only grows two inches and dies, whose problem is that? Not mine. God told me to cast the seed. He didn't tell me to make it grow. He didn't tell me to grow that plant. That's His. That's His job. It's not yours. And when you go into apologetics with the attitude, if I do this wrong, I may turn someone off forever, then you have already removed God from the throne and placed yourself there because you're going to be the one determining this person's life venture. No, God does that, not you. Your job's to defend. Well, we'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old daughter's oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old daughter's oak. We'll be sharpening the axe to cut down old daughter's oak. For the Lord, he's stronger far. And we all.